Welcome to this Innovation Forum podcast with me, Ian Welsh. Joining me is John Morrison, who's CEO of the Institute for Human Rights and Business. Welcome back to the podcast, John. Hi, Ian. It's great to be back. We're talking in late November, and the FIFA World Cup in Qatar has raised the profile of human rights and forced labour issues. Are you feeling, John, that there's a sense of there being a moment of opportunity here? Yes, definitely. I mean, we've worked on the issue since London Olympics. So we've gone through the cycle of the Olympics at least twice. And then there was the Brazil and then Russia and now Qatar World Cups. And clearly, human rights is getting more focus, at least in terms of the viewers of the World Cup and supporters and fans than was the case for those previous events. It's been a long time coming, but very pleased to see that people are talking about human rights in relation to a mega sporting event. Yes, it was really interesting to see how some of the TV stations and TV coverage really focused on the human rights issues that have been raised around the World Cup in Qatar before the opening match. That was a really interesting way for them to approach it and something I think probably haven't seen before. There was a little bit of it around Russia and we worked with some broadcasters back then to try and embolden them and, and also around the Champions League and UEFA and There has been some of that over previous years, but a lot more this time and varying in quality, of course, sometimes a bit simplistic, sort of coming in a bit late in a sense, in terms of migrant workers and construction in terms of Qatar, but obviously the LGBTI issue and other issues around gender, etc. Keep it as a live issue for the experience of supporters going there. And I hope this is something that stays beyond Qatar, because in some ways, It's not just about Qatar, it's about wherever these events are hosted. It's a bit rich that Sepp Blatter comes back and now says he'd sell his remorse. Um, We have to remember that human rights was not in the bidding requirements for Qatar. FIFA made the commitment to John Ruggie, what, about five or six years ago, but that only starts with the next FIFA World Cup, i.e. 2026 and beyond, where it was in the bidding requirements. If we're looking at human rights in the nuts and bolts of how these things are acquired and delivered, we've really got to look ahead to Paris 2024 and North America 2026 to really see human rights in action at these events. So if the focus of the world is now more on human rights issues, what for you are the big areas of human rights risks for business that we should be looking at at the moment? There's so many. I would not frame human rights as just a risk for business. Human rights is always a bigger issue than just risk. It is opportunity. We don't tend to think about the opportunity side as much. But over the past year around Ukraine and Russia in context of sanctions, boycotts, but also the human rights dimensions of climate, consumers getting more focused themselves, more engaged. But we have a food crisis. We have a global energy crisis. There's a perfect storm, if you like. These issues are becoming more salient for investors, for consumers, for ESG in terms of finance, at a time when margins are slimmer and there's less cash around. A bit like with the financial crisis 10 years ago, 12 years ago, when we thought, well, you know, that was the end of CSR, I think, in a way, the financial crisis killed off CSR and the good stuff survived. I think we're in for a cull now where hopefully a lot of the greenwashing and the fluff around human rights dies away and the real material stuff that is core to business survives. I don't feel afraid about the tunnel we're going into. I think it's necessary and important. We're going to see more and more around trade and how the traceability agenda around commodities, whether green commodities or existing commodities, how that rubs up against global trade and the mass balance approach that most commodity chains are based on. 
whether that be in relation to China and Xinjiang or just more globally, this issue of trade, business and human rights is becoming bigger and bigger, I think. And, and there are some tough choices there in relation to big markets like China, both in terms of supply chain, but also increasingly from a marketing point of view as well. So I think business and human rights is growing up in, you know, I just feel we're beginning to grow up and, and move our agenda into a world of trade-offs and tough decisions and high politics. And that's how it feels. Yeah. Interesting you made the point around how the issues around human rights are becoming more salient for investment community. I mean, we've heard a lot about how investors are looking for companies to be very transparent on all their climate-related emissions. If we're thinking about how business is engaged in human rights, is it the investment community that's really driving the change, do you think? To some extent. With the corporate human rights benchmark now over five or six years, we have a sense, and the World Benchmarking Alliance more generally, of how far investors have come on the, the S and ESG. And I think we all would like a lot more substance and a lot more action on S. The work we're doing on Just Transition over the past two years, and, and even Al Gore was talking to this at COP27, is that the issue of social license around the green transition, you know, the social resistance we're seeing, the Bolsonaros and Trumps of this world who try and seed fear and misinformation and build resistance within populations. But then also the well-founded fears that people have around jobs and livelihoods. This is a huge issue for the months and years ahead. And this, I think, positions human rights right at the center of the new social contracts we're moving into around the green economy, around the circular economy, around more transparent supply chains. I don't believe the economist when they say the DSG is a problem. It is a problem if we don't create more substance beneath it. And there is a lot of rubbish, to be honest, in terms of, of people making ESG claims. It's inevitable now, I think, that the social dimension of these big global issues becomes absolutely critical, and business and human rights is central to that. Even if people don't like using the human rights language, it is at the end of the day about the impacts on people and through some universal framework that gives people agency and some level of accountability against powerful actors. And if that's not human rights, I don't know what is. An awful lot of the work in human rights, or certainly the awareness about human rights, has been down to human rights defenders who we've seen around the planet putting themselves at risk to raise the awareness of what's going on. How are you seeing the role of human rights defenders evolving? Human rights and environmental defenders, i.e. people who are willing to step up and through their work and actions and things they say and do, are willing to sort of stand in the way of or stand up for these very issues more and more, I think, and just look at what's happening in Iran at the moment in terms of what young people, young women are doing in terms of their own lives and livelihoods. Young people are standing up around the world because they only have one life and they want it to count. They are also concerned about the generations to come. And I do think human rights is increasingly within that fold, this context of intergenerational justice. Even our director in Myanmar, Vicky Bowman, has just been released from prison after three months. Who'd have thought that the Myanmar Centre for Responsible Business would be in that context of people being arrested? Again, when I talk about business and human rights growing up, there is risk involved in even talking about issues like accountability and transparency and ranking companies in order of their performance and the basic questions around rule of law and which companies deserve investment and which don't. 
The social dimension is the inconvenient truth, as somebody once said. It's not without risk, but it's coming. Who are we to say that the women of Iran are wrong? They're not. They're incredibly brave. We're seeing this around the world on many different issues, even COVID restrictions in China, for example. People are stepping up, and I think we'll see more and more of this. Talking about Iran, there was an interesting stand made at the start of the uh, Iran's opening game in the World Cup where all their players very powerfully stood and refused to sing the national anthem of the Islamic Republic. Very powerful statement made and a brave statement to make as well from those players. You were at COP27 in Egypt. What were your reflections of how things went there? <laughs> in my earlier life, I used to go to party political conferences in the UK when I worked on refugee issues, we would always have stalls and engage with the parliamentarians on another very unpopular issue, <laughs> that of refugee protection. And a COP reminded me of a Labour Party or Conservative Party or Liberal Party conference, just like 100 times bigger. What's positive about it is that every government in the world, with one or two exceptions, takes COP very seriously. The pavilions this time were enormous. And many governments, you could have been there for a year and still been going around the pavilions listening to presentations. Many governments brought experts from their country. So I've learned a lot about green hydrogen that I didn't know. Obviously, loss and damage. The just transition conversation was expanding as well. So that was a really positive thing about COP. Less positive was the fact that all of what I've said happened in the blue zone, the UN area. The green zone was much smaller than Glasgow. There wasn't spontaneous protest. Civil society wasn't really able to do that safely in the context of Egypt. It felt very different from Glasgow and Greta Thunberg didn't go, obviously, as we all know. So mixed feelings about COP27. Very good that loss and damage got on the agenda. Very bad that there's no phase-out commitment to oil and gas. In relation to just transition, good that there was a reassertion, if you like, of just transition as a central concept, but still no human rights content beyond the labor standards and workplace rights. So very surprising because just transition and international human rights are both in the preamble to the Paris Climate Agreement. Yet linking the two seems to be a very controversial thing to do. So <laughs> very pleased, though, to be there with our patron, Mary Robinson and uh, Sharon Barrow and others who are great champions in this space to advance that agenda. How are you seeing human rights issues integrating into such events? As you say, they were in the preamble to the Paris Agreement. There's a sense that they are more to the fore. But your takeaway from COP27 is that it's still nothing like enough. No, but I think it's coming. I gave a presentation to UNFCCC Working Group 3, which yeah, there's a whole new one for a human rights person. And there, the big focus has been transition out, quite rightly, mitigation, transition out of coal, oil, gas, and the impact on workers, etc. has been central. But they're also aware now that they need to think about the transition in to the green economy. And the moment you think about that and you realize that 70% of the unmined transition commodities sit below indigenous lands, that we'll see more mining in the future, not less mining, the way that commodities are traded globally also has human rights impacts too. The human rights agenda is so obviously linked to the green economy, mining, the positioning of energy sources, green hydrogen, huge amounts of land required for that. Also huge trade-offs for African countries. If they're going to strand their oil and gas assets, they're going to need export commodities to balance the deficit in trade. Green hydrogen could be that if Europe and others are hungry for the hydrogen, but that doesn't necessarily serve Africa's own energy needs. That sort of extractive model that we've had with carbon in Africa could easily become an extractive green model in the next five, 10 years. 
So that positions human rights, again, right in the middle of discussions around equity and fairness and distributive justice as well. I'm absolutely convinced that the more we think about transition in, you know, transition out is largely an issue of, of what we used to call national industrial strategy right, in the 1970s. <laughs> Labour rights are very, very central to that, definitely. I mean, as, as well as other human rights. But the moment you start thinking about transition in, you can't think about that in any sensible way without thinking about human rights. Indigenous peoples will not allow you to think about that in any way without thinking about human rights. So I'm absolutely sure that the human rights agenda will grow within the COP process because of the transition in discussion, as well, of course, as loss and damage and these wider issues of climate justice that everyone seems to talk about now, quite rightly. Even the woman representing the G77, the Pakistani environment minister, when she sort of announced success around loss and damage, she even used the words of climate justice, that we're starting to achieve climate justice in relation to loss and damage. This is what Mary Robinson and others were working on 15 years ago to try and get those basic concepts of justice into the environmental discussion. That piece of it has definitely arrived now. And the global south itself, they might not always use human rights language, but they will certainly talk about social equity and the need for justice in relation to climate. Yeah. You are right. The, the Pakistani foreign minister, I think it was, she certainly was very powerful in her remarks. It strikes me, John, that all of this is this growing up of the human rights agenda, growing up of the business and human rights agenda that you mentioned earlier. What are the big areas of focus for the Institute at the moment? What's coming up for you guys? I've mentioned just transition. We need to have a global framework on just transition that has labour rights and the transition out at its centre, but goes beyond that to consider the rights of all communities indigenous groups, but also consumers. Very few people are talking about just transition in relation to consumers. And yet, if you think about energy, and if you think about the global food crisis and health and those issues, that is going to come. So we're trying to create a framework that applies not just to the energy transition, but also could extend to the agricultural transition and the built environment transition as well. Working with the ILO, UNFCCC, many others as well, to evidence what could work. It's not our role. We're not a, a UN agency to actually negotiate the framework. But I think what's needed very quickly is a set of incentives and some level of accountability or quality control around just transition. Something that happened in Glasgow was the announcement of the $8.7 for South Africa to transition out of coal. And that was the birth of what are now called Just Energy Transition Partnerships. Indonesia and others are talking about this now. What we found is if you look at how the J and Jet P, the justice element of that, it's being defined in very different ways in different locations. And honestly, the way the financial community behaves around it is it will go the way of S and ESG or even the way of CSR eventually, unless there's some level of quality control. So I think we're going to move quite quickly with others to try and inject some quality control around the Jet Ps, the Just Energy Transition Partnerships uh, between now and COP28 in Dubai. I think for us, that's, I wouldn't call it low hanging fruit. But it's an urgent requirement where the elaboration of international norms around just transition will just not be there in time to cut into behavior that's already happening. Leverage comes with law, but it also comes with finance. Can we somehow get the global financial community to adhere to internationally recognized just transition standards in terms of where they invest and where they don't invest and the kind of leverage they put on projects in relation to justice outcomes? So we see that as a very important near-term objective. 
We talked a lot about a lot of things over the last 20 minutes or so. And it is easy to get dispirited given that the human rights issues don't ever seem to go away. I mean, we've been talking about them for 10 years. At the end of the year, we're coming towards the end of 2022. So what are the causes for optimism in terms of business and human rights issues going into 2023 that you should be aware of? What are the things that we should wake up in the morning and feel, yes, we can pursue this and push this forward today? <laughs> well, it reminds me of when I was at Body Shop over 20 years ago and discussions with Anita Roddick and Gordon Roddick back then. And Body Shop was quite good at having a conversation with consumers, the people that actually walked into the shops, as well as the people that worked in the shops, who weren't paid a lot of money, but, but got very, very passionate about the values of the company and the, and the difference the company could make and the difference the consumers themselves could make. It's amazing how little progress we've made on that agenda the past 20 odd years. <laughs> However, I do think this is coming, actually. The Gen Z consumer-led behavior and ethical behavior. I mean, you were seeing it around the World Cup. I think we'll begin to see more focus, more attention to consumer behavior, information that consumers can use to inform their buying and investment decisions. And clearly, with the corporate human rights benchmark and lots of other things a lot of people are doing, we've always tried to take everything from the abstract into a context where consumers themselves can exercise their own discretion and reward companies and penalize companies. But I just think that's coming. I just think we're edging ever increasingly towards it. And with technology these days and crowdsourcing and blockchain and all these other things, technology can enable consumer choices and behavior to matter in a way that was impossible 20 years ago. Remember, Body Shop, it was either thumbprints on big cards for Aung San Suu Kyi back then or little stickers. It was very analog. <laughs> now, the digital age should enable us to link consumers to the behavior of customers and, their, and the companies and their supply chains. That's what I'm positive about, actually. And the conversation comes up again and again and again in, in many different contexts. That's a very positive thing for next year, I think, and for the years ahead, Ian. Definitely, consumers are expecting more transparency. And the fact that the issues around human rights, around labor issues, trafficking issues, people are aware of them. People are seeing much more examples of it in their everyday lives. And the fact that the BBC, we're in the UK, so we are, the World Cup's being led by the BBC and ITV, both broadcasters talked about human rights before they showed their first games of, of the World Cup. And that was something I certainly I had never seen before. I think you're right, John, there are elements or there are reasons to be positive. And certainly younger consumers are very much aware of these things. They want the transparency to know where things have come from and be certain that they know where things have come from. And that's, that's a definite change. I mean, yeah, I mean, the challenge is it would have been great if the BBC had been covering the issues around migrant labour in Qatar five or six years ago. <laughs> We're all working on it because that's when the leverage was really needed, when the trade union movement and others were working on this. And similarly, on forced labour and modern slavery, consumers can get shocked if a company is too honest about the possibility of forced labour in its supply chains. So there's a level of complexity and customer consumer education that has to come into play for consumers to really be able to reward. the Because sometimes the most transparent companies are also those most transparent about the things they're doing wrong. And then they're Nestle baby milk. And you know, consumers have long memories, right? Because so, some consumers are still boycotting companies for things that happened 20, 30 years ago. There also has to be some kind of, as Klaus Leisinger used to say, a Richter scale or a sort of a statute of limitations as well around pieces of information and the possibility for companies to redeem themselves, but also for companies to definitely be penalized. There's a lot of things we have to put in place, I think, for the reward loop, the virtuous cycle to come into play. But we're certainly moving in that direction. You're absolutely right that companies need to make consumers aware of the fact that they aren't how they were 
25 years ago, Nestle being a prime example. Nestle done amazing things, of course, since then to move things forward and be transparent about it, which is great to see. It's been a great conversation. Thanks very much as ever for your insights. Thanks, Ian.